Guilty, guilty, guilty. The Trump Organization is convicted and found guilty on 17 felony counts in New York State Court. And with it, I don't know your take, Popak, but for me, it feels like the floodgates are open on Trump's criminal liability in other proceedings as well, and by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office on other matters. The Department of Justice criminal investigations of Donald Trump are heating up under special counsel Jack Smith. The Department of Justice under Jack Smith's leadership even filed a motion for contempt in the secret grand jury proceedings before Judge Beryl Howell, who's overseeing the criminal grand juries investigating Trump's crimes. Although the court ultimately denied the contempt motion, we'll explain right here on Legal AF why that is not a win for Donald Trump. And let's talk about the likely strategy, the aggressive newest strategy being deployed by the Department of Justice behind that motion for contempt. The Supreme Court heard oral argument in two critical cases that we will talk about on this weekend's edition of Legal AF. 303 Creative versus Ellenis, which was a case that would allow private businesses to discriminate against the LGBTQ plus community if the business claims that their discrimination is just part of its religious beliefs. And we'll also talk about a case Moore versus Harper. That's the case involving the radical, extremist, independent state legislature doctrine or theory, which would essentially hold that state legislatures can do anything they want with federal elections, regardless of the state courts and the state constitutions, even though the state constitutions create the legislature. I don't even think the right-wing extremists are fully buying this, but the fact that they even heard this case is something that is really, really frightening. Ivanka Trump entered into a bit of an odd deal with the New York Attorney General's office this week in the Attorney General's $250 million fraud lawsuit against Trump, the Trump Organization, and his adult children, which, which includes Ivanka. And the deal here provided that the independent monitor restrictions and all of the oversight that's being done over the Trump Organization and Trump's other adult children for some reason, won't apply to Ivanka. But let's discuss why we think the New York Attorney General made this deal. I want to get Popak's take on that. And then the District of Columbia Circuit Court of Appeal, yes, the Washington, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeal, heard oral arguments in Trump's appeal this week where Trump is claiming absolute civil immunity from his conduct on January 6th on the basis that under our Constitution and as the precedent has interpreted Article 2, presidents are entitled to absolute civil immunity. In a case back in the 1970s involving Nixon v. Fitzgerald uh, set forth that precedent, but the lower federal court in Washington, D.C. found that absolute civil immunity did not apply here because 
Donald Trump was not effectuating any constitutional roles and responsibilities, quite the contrary. But let's break down what the Court of Appeals was grappling with, what we think the likely outcome is. And I think based on the questions being asked by the Court of Appeals there, it's a little bit of a closer call than I would like ultimately what I think the ruling is going to be there. But Michael Popak, thank you for joining us. I have a bit of a sore throat today, so I apologize for all of those watching and listening. All these hot takes after a while may have taken the toll on my voice a little bit. I was going to say, don't adjust your electronic knobs. Ben's not feeling well, at least at his throat. But we're going to make it through because this is like the Postal Service. Neither rain nor snow nor sleet nor dark of night nor laryngitis for one of the co-anchors is going to stop us from making our appointed rounds through the legal system. I got a teaser for one of our segments. I got a prediction. I think the 17 count conviction of the main entity that Trump plies his trade through, the Trump organization, or at least its two major subsidiaries, coupled with the fact that he has not replaced his counsel with the New York Attorney, Gen New York Attorney General civil suit and is still relying on Alina Habba, of all things, I think it's more likely now that there will be a settlement of the civil fraud case, much to Letitia James's advantage, and he's not going to go all the way through trial now having lost in front of a jury um, he, I don't think even Trump can't afford two fraud convictions almost back to back and this one involving his children. I'll talk more about that when we get to the segment. Well, let's get into the segment right away. Um, <laughs> so first, let's talk about two different things, right? The first is the criminal case against the Trump organization. The other is a civil case brought by the New York Attorney General's office. So why didn't the New York Attorney General's office bring a criminal case? Well, the New York Attorney General is invested with that power. Who is vested with that power is the district attorney's offices and the Manhattan District Attorney's Office here brought the, brought the criminal case against the Trump organization um, and certain of its executives. And Alan Weisselberg, for example, the Trump organization CFO, who previously pled guilty to 11 felony counts. And this case involved improper uh, benefits that were being given to executives. They were being given off the books so that the Trump organization itself would not be taxed for it. They could claim the costs uh, you know, they could claim it as an exemption and the executive was not claiming it on their taxes. So it was kind of on both ends of it, a, a fraud. And so first you had Weisselberg pled guilty. The criminal trial uh, took place. Um, what well, was about seven weeks, right? Popak with jury selection, maybe a little. Yeah, I, yeah it was about seven weeks and, and uh, less than uh, six hours of total deliberation when you subtract lunch by the jury to convict on all 17 counts against the two main subsidiaries of the Trump organization, which is Trump Inc. and Trump Payroll. Um, go ahead, Ben, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, so tell us about, I mean, it was a mm -hmm. swift verdict by the <laughs> jurors. As you said, the overall time they were out was 10 hours. If you subtract yeah. lunch and other breaks, we're talking about six hours for all 17 felony counts. And the instructions at issue, though, for them to have found the Trump organization guilty, they had to have found that the Trump organization itself was the recipient of these benefits, that it did this knowingly, and that the scheme was led at the top by Donald Trump. And even though Donald Trump was not a criminal defendant in this case, 
His name was brought up right before deliberations because when the jury has to deliberate, who is the managing agent? Who is the person from the corporation that is the one who was involved in this? Donald Trump's name was the name that came up. And one of the things I think to mention too is that Trump put the Trump organization put up a lot of people, including Weisselberg, who tried to basically claim that Trump himself may not have known and there wasn't any benefit there. But the jury didn't believe that. The jury thought that like on those issues that all those Trump executives were lying. What was your take on this verdict? Yeah, and you and, you and I did, along with Karen Freeman Nifflo, we did an hour and a half uh, the day of the verdict. Um, on the analysis. Let's see if we can bring something new to the table today that's really interesting. Um, my take is that Weisselberg did what he was supposed to do. He he was a, he, he, he colored within the lines as far as the cooperation agreement or the agreement he had with the prosecutor's office to testify truthfully, or um, he wouldn't get the five months in Riker Island deal on his conviction. And they're not done with Alan Weisselberg. The reporting is, um, and we'll talk about it today, that Alan Bragg is is reinvigorated and newly turbocharged, coming off a major, major win, what Karen Freeman at Niflo, our co-anchor, called an example of a prosecutor getting their sea legs um, in, in Alan Bragg. And now he it's reported not only has he brought on a new prosecutor who from the world on the civil side, who's successfully gone off after the Trump organization, uh, and the Trump charity in the past, and those were all those things are buried. Matthew Colangelo. Matthew Colangelo is now working for Alvin Bragg, but Alvin Bragg is even looking at a potential second count of fraud against Alan Weisselberg to squeeze his anatomically incorrect body parts to get him to testify again against Donald Trump in an insurance fraud scheme that Alan Weisselberg, on behalf of the Trump organization, lied to the Hartford Insurance Company on an appraisal issue. And that gives rise to an insurance fraud. Also reporting that Alan Bragg is looking at the Stormy Daniels election fraud, whether money was used to improperly benefit candidate Trump off the books that should have been disclosed as part of um, as part of the election law in the state of New York. So you've got an emboldened Alvin Bragg who, who, who actually getting reports from his prosecutors that things are going really well for him, as you noted in one of your hot takes, even announced that he was adding on to his Trump team before the verdict. It was while they were still deliberating, before the verdict even came out. So I, my... Yeah, really gutsy. And it shows that A, he's getting great intel, great intel from his from his people, prosecutors who are watching the jury and the jury. I'm sure they're reporting like Josh Steinglass, the lead prosecutor there um, uh, who did the closing, that the jury's buying what we're selling and is not buying what the Trump organization's lawyers are selling. And these were a couple of very uh, well-regarded white-collar criminal defense lawyers. They're not the typical you know, barrel of monkeys that Trump usually hires for cases. These were really well-established people. But, you know, the facts are the facts. The law is the law and your witnesses are your witnesses. And the jury obviously credited Alan Weisselberg for admitting that he committed fraud and didn't buy that in a very small family-run office where the, the, the executives all have the last name Trump, that they, that they didn't know about the under-the-payment payments being made, under-the-table payments that were being made for apartments and uh, 
uh, school tuition and uh, and car services for 15 years made absolutely no sense. And also, I'm sure the credited uh, the jury credited this fact that in 2017, the Trump organization suddenly cleaned up their act and got rid of the under the payment uh, under the table payments and started paying. Um, Alan Weisselberg and two other executives, $200,000 more a year in income, which of course was reported at that point, to pay for all of these perks. Well, who made that decision? Ivanka, Don Jr., Eric, and Donald Trump. So they were not buying this very weak, weak tea of a defense that this was all about uh, a rogue set of executives, three of them, including Alan Weisselberg, that just decided to pay themselves off the books and the boss didn't know. I mean, I can't even get that statement out without it being, um, uh, you know, passing the straight face test. But here's my next analysis, and I want to get your take on this. He can say whatever he wants with this guy, Stephen Chung, that seems to be his current spokesperson every time there's an event now. It's the exact same talking point. If Donald Trump is standing against a weaponized Department of Justice or a weaponized prosecutor's office or a weaponized New York Attorney General's office, and he's the last bastion of hope for America. Okay, put that aside. Who cares? All of his tweets, who cares? The reality is that his organization has been found to be a felon 17 times in the state of New York. A, they're going to have to leave the state of New York because they're no longer going to be able to operate a business in New York under that corporate name because they're completely radioactive with lenders, insurance companies, regulators, licensing agencies, and the like. That's one. Two, they got to get out from under Letitia James and her her broad civil authority under what we call the 63-12 powers of the uh, New York State uh, New York State uh, powers given to the New York Attorney General. She does have some, by the way, we said earlier she doesn't have criminal powers. She does have some limited criminal powers not applicable here, but her civil powers are extraordinary and on a much lower standard of, uh, uh, standard of evidence, a lower burden of proof that she has to make out. She's a scary person if you're a fraudster like Donald Trump. I also predict he's going to have to leave the state, take that organization either to Delaware or to another friendlier state and get out from under future attorney general oversight by Letitia James. And the third thing I think happens because of a 17 count conviction or the fourth thing is that it emboldens future prosecutors and current prosecutors that they can get a conviction against Donald Trump or an organization so close to Donald Trump that it's almost it's almost uh, no there's no daylight this emboldens Fawny Willis and others to say you know what it's the first time ever that a jury convicted Trump or a, or a Trump related entity of fraud that's great that emboldens prosecutors and the last thing is Trump's got to settle the civil case. There is no way on God's greed earth that even he believes that if he loses again, and he will lose again in another jury trial, this time with Letitia James, where his only defense is Alina Haba at present, he's got to settle that case if she'll take a settlement. I think she takes a settlement, but it's like on her terms. And it'll be very, very broad and sweeping. Because if he loses again, convicted in this almost the same year will be the well within six months he'll be convicted of fraud twice civilly and criminally it's the death knell for donald trump no matter what he tweets i hope that she doesn't settle um number one (laughs) but if she does settle i hope she settles for at least a billion dollars 
Um, because, you know, and I, and I, if she's watching this or if others in the New York attorney general's office are watching this or other lawyers who are potentially prosecuting Trump are watching this or, or maybe prosecuting Trump are watching this, you see how weak Donald Trump actually is just like when he was in office. It's all a facade. It's all the bravado and bluster. It's all bark and absolutely no bite at all. And when we think about who didn't testify at the criminal trial, who I'm sure the jury would want to hear from, and this is one of the instructions that juries get, did one of the parties have the opportunity to bring a witness in to dispute an evidence, to dispute an item of evidence, and that party was under their control, but they didn't present them? That's something that the juries are told in their jury instructions. And Donald Trump did not show up at the Trump organization criminal trial, and he could have showed up. Similarly, when he was deposed in the special proceeding that predates the filing of the lawsuit by New York Attorney General Letitia James first, Donald Trump tried to do what he always does, which is run away run away from his problems, run away from the deposition. And then when he was finally compelled to be deposed, New York Attorney General Letitia James showed up. She was at the deposition and she asked him the most basic of questions. And a jury gets to hear this in a civil case, unlike in the criminal case, that Donald Trump invoked his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination over 400 times. And he was asked the most basic of basic questions by Letitia James. So, Mr. Trump, can you please tell me what was the appraised value of the Trump Towers? Mr. Trump, what's the appraised value of Bedminster? Mr. Trump, what's the appraised value of Mar-a-Lago? Okay, what's the valuation of those properties? Why is there a difference between the appraisal and the valuation? Mr. Trump, who prepares your... Uh, statement of financial conditions, Mr. Trump, the most basic of questions, right? Those are the questions that Donald Trump goes, I plead the fifth, I plead the fifth, I plead the fifth, I plead the fifth. And a jury at that trial, that trial's currently set for October of 2023, which we've talked about as an extraordinarily quick trial date for a civil case brought in New York in September of 2022. Letitia James gets to go in front of the jury and say, we wanted to resolve these issues with Trump. We asked him the questions. He invoked his Fifth Amendment uh, right against self-incrimination. She gets to show the video. She gets, she gets to, show to show the, the video, video of the deposition of Donald Trump. And you all, because he made those statements, you all, and because he invoked the Fifth, you all can make an adverse inference against this. You're, you can infer that he engaged in the misconduct because he's refusing to answer the questions. And then the other thing, as we talk about uh, how Letitia James is aggressively pursuing the civil case, we, we must not forget there's currently an independent monitor, retired Judge Barbara Jones, a former federal judge from the Southern District of New York, who currently has access to Donald Trump's statement of financial conditions and other financial records. Judge Arthur Engeron, who's overseeing that Trump civil lawsuit brought by Letitia James, ordered that Trump turn over like a, the whole structure of all the Trump organizations, any type of material transaction Trump has to show, uh, that independent monitor, Barbara Jones. And so that's taking place as well. But let's just bring this up right now, Popak, so it's not disjointed in this episode. 
because Ivanka Trump, though, entered into that deal with the New York Attorney General's office, where even though there is the independent monitor, which I just uh, discussed, why do you think it was that Letitia James um, entered into a deal with Ivanka? Why, why were they okay with it? Yeah. So that Ivanka was not subject to the independent monitor kind of oversight and requirements. And I get Ivanka stated and she signed a declaration saying that she had no affiliation with the organization for the past four years. But I mean, come on. I I'm mean, these are, like, these are like yeah. lying lowlifes. I don't. Yeah. And here's my take on it. A, I don't think that um, Ivanka is completely blameless. In fact, when, when her lawyer tried to get her out from the financial monitor, the independent monitor's scope in the courtroom with Judge Engeron, these arguments were made. Same arguments. I left I left Trump organization in 2017 to join my father's administration and I never returned. I'm now a housewife in Miami. I'm not even involved with the Trump campaign. We'll talk yeah, about man, that my as husband well. he just gets billions of dollars from the Saudis now. And right, right. I, I right. I get blood money from the Saudis. I don't need to get it from my father any longer. Um they tried that and Judge Engeron said, Yeah, no, you you're staying in. And Letitia actually Letitia James's office actually fought back in the courtroom and said, that's not entirely true. She has blood on her hands, not literally. Um, uh, Ivanka was involved at least in um, potential loan fraud with Deutsche Bank. It was named specifically in the hearing in terms of um, appraisal issues. She was involved with a similar financing, uh, which we think was civil fraud in Chicago. And so, no, she doesn't come to this court with clean hands and she should not be let out. Now, so what happened since then? Let's let's state a couple of things that I'm sure we can all agree on. Tisha James is supremely bright, is a chess master, a grand chess master, and is holding all of the cards at the present time. And as I said on my on one of my hot takes, and she's also holding some other anatomical parts as well, which she can squeeze at any moment. That independent monitor, financial monitor, can, based on the order, demand immediate turnover of any financial information from any of the of the children, Don Jr., Eric, and Ivanka until she got let out, and and Trump with five on five days notice. In other words, turn it over five days from now. And there's really no recourse. That's how strong her powers are. So there is obviously a deal that's been cut. And there's two theories about it. I'll give you mine and then I'll give you a summary of, of our of our co-anchor um, Karen Friedman at Niffalo when she did it with me on the midweek. Mine is that Ivanka is going to be a lot more cooperative. I'm not saying she's going to drop a dime on daddy, but she's going to be a lot more cooperative with Letitia James in turning over information and in potentially coming back in for an interview. Recall that the last time she fought just as hard as her, as her brother and uh, her brothers and father not to testify she, she shares a lawyer, a co-counsel lawyer with her brothers, but she does have her own allegedly independent counsel, one that I'm sure daddy's paying for. But um, she she did put up the Fifth Amendment in response to some questions that were asked of her, but I don't think as frequently or as vigorously as her brothers and Donald uh, and Don uh, and her father. Now, I think Letitia has extracted something in return from letting her out. Because she, because Leticia had all the leverage and all the cards, so a, I think she got a a more cooperative version of Ivanka. That's one. Two, if of if this is Karen's theory, if 
the pro- if uh, Letitia is trying to streamline her case, one way to do it is to focus all of her attention on Don Jr. and Eric, and Eric in particular, and and the father, and kind of cut out the and get out of the courtroom somebody that's a little bit controversial and some people still like, which is in all of her star power, which is Ivanka, and making a tactical decision that she has been gone since 2017. And if there is a transaction that's going to happen, because this is an injunction hearing to enjoin certain maneuvers and moving of money and assets, if the if John Jr., Eric, or the father are moving assets around, they're going to know it because they're still under the monitor. And if they're moving them to, to um, stupid enough to try to move them to Ivanka or something that touches Ivanka, we're going to see the, the asset transfer out from the brothers and the fathers, so we don't really need to get Ivanka under under the whip of the monitor. I think it's that. I think it's the streamlining of the case. You don't need, you don't know how a jury is going to is going to accept Ivanka. We we criticized her heavily, and rightfully so, on the podcast and in other places, the Midas Media Network. But she's controversial, and some people like her. And you bring her into a courtroom with all that wattage and star power, and she's the best looking of all the Trump kids, and she still has a little bit of celebrity cachet. That could blow the minds of some some jurors, and they're not focused where they need to be on the financial fraud, on the financial crime. So you put her on the sideline, you get a cooperation agreement, streamline your case, and you focus all of your energy and all of your firepower where it belongs on Eric and Don Jr., who have been running the company along with their father, um, Donald Trump. It's an interesting take on Ivanka. I think yeah. she's probably, other than Donald, I mean, they're all incredibly depro- deplorable low lives. But you know, I, I don't think she has any jury appeal. I don't think she has any appeal at all. I think she's a total fake and phony. Phony. I think uh, New Yorkers detest her. I think, by and large, most people see that she is just a complete liar and just a complete BS artist and yeah. and gaslighter. But I, I I I hear you. I hear you take the yeah. one other point. Well, I'm in, one, but remember, I'm in New York. I'm in New York. I can tell you that everything you just said totally applies to Jared Kushner. I will tell you that she is a mixed bag when it comes to her celebrity. She's done a lot of good in the city. We all believe that she um, enabled her father in all the wrong ways while she was in the administration um, and and that she's a force of, of evil and bad, not good. But I will tell you that there are people that still like her in New York. And if you're what did she do jury, good in New York City? Just a lot of charitable, a lot of charitable things. And she's been able, she's a little more Teflon coded than her brothers are because she's not out to, you know, she's not dropping, you know, TikTok videos looking to be impaired on drugs like Don Jr. Eric kind of stays off the radar too. I give you but that. I'm t- I give you yeah, that. but I, I'm telling you. Low thre- it's a low threshold. She does it not is. do TikTok videos it is. of herself looking like a uh, man. Yeah, right. So anyway, we'll see. But you, in other words, you don't. if you're Letitia James, you don't need Ivanka. You don't need Ivanka. She didn't drop her as a defendant. Exactly. She dropped her under the financial monitor part of it. And if she cooperates with her, maybe over time, in return for something even better, her lawyers can convince Letitia to let her out of the case. We'll see. But but it's not nothing. I don't want people to come away with, oh, it's interesting. She just let Leti- you know, she just let um Ivanka out from under the financial monitor. Something was extracted in return. We just don't know what it is yet. And look, uh Letitia James can immediately 
turn back on that switch in a second and get the financial monitor back in place there. It's not like this like totally removes a financial monitor. Yeah. And the judge hasn't been the judge hasn't approved it yet. This is a stipulation that the parties have brought, but the judge has to sign off on it. And, you know, somebody's going to have to explain to the judge why Ivanka is suddenly no longer a part of the financial fraud that she needs to be let out. I think the argument is she is has been gone for the last five years and they can catch all of the transfers without having Ivanka turn over uh, to Barbara Jones all of her financial information. We know why Ivanka doesn't want to be part of that because of her her uh, financial relationship with her husband and, and, and the ones with the, you know, overseas, you know, Saudi Arabians. Which is precisely why I think that she shouldn't be let out because <laughs> the complete end run around the Trump organization's uh, failings is by the blood money to Jared Kushner. And so to have access to the end run around, I think is important. But I do agree with you that she's still a defendant. This independent monitor is still an incredibly strong uh, maneuver in any litigation to take place. And in any event, any of the financial dealings for the Trump organization to have any material deals or dealings will still be seen regardless of this by the independent monitor retired judge Barbara Jones. Let's talk about this Jack Smith uh, DOJ contempt motion because, you know, a lot of people have wanted the DOJ to get more aggressive on these like discovery related kind of issues with Trump not turning over records. And here they got as aggressive as as you can go, which is going right to the federal judge overseeing these grand jurors, uh, the grand jury investigating Trump's crimes and asking uh, the judge, Judge Beryl Howell. She is a federal judge who oversees all of the grand jury proceedings in Washington, D.C. federal court, uh, including these uh, at least two, probably more uh, criminal grand juries investigating Donald Trump. But before getting into that, I want to tell you about Athletic Greens. Today's program is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition really simple. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits, give our bodies the nutrients it needs to thrive. Busy schedules, poor sleep, exercise, the environment, Work stress or simply not eating enough of the right foods can leave us deficient in key nutritional areas. AG1 by Athletic Greens, the category-leading superfood product, brings comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition to everybody. Keeping up with the research, knowing what to do, and taking a bunch of pills and capsules is hard on the stomach and hard to keep up with. To help each of us be at our best, they simplify the path to better nutrition by giving you the one thing with all the best things. And that's what I found with Athletic Greens. First, it tastes really good. Two, it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. And three, I used to take all of these gummies and capsules and pills, and it wasn't doing the trick. But with one tasty scoop of AG1, it contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend and more in one convenient daily serving. The special blend of high-quality bioavailable ingredients and a scoop of AG1 work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, support energy and focus, aid with gut health and digestion, and support a healthy immune system, effectively replacing multiple products or pills with one healthy and delicious drink. And what I like about it, again, is you take the powder, you put it in your cup, you put some water, you shake it up, you drink it, it tastes 
good and you are good for the day and it's lifestyle friendly. So whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, it contains less than a gram of sugar, no GMOs and no nasty chemicals. So please join the movement of legal AFers and take control over your health in the simplest manner possible. That's essential nutrition. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. If you visit athleticgreens.com slash legal AF today, again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash legal AF and take control of your health and give AG1 a try. I love AG1, tastes great, and I think you will enjoy it as well. And leave me some comments if you like the AG1. I also want to talk about as holiday season approaches or a frames. Um, I don't know about you, Popak. Well, I do know about you because you've got three aura frames around. Here's one right now. Popak is showing. Look at that view. Can you see that view? Look at that picture. That's a picture. The the picture is beautiful because what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of digital photo frames, Popak? I mean, before aura frames, to me, it was like kind of crummy, pixelated. (laughs) They were terrible. And then aura frames, I was like, I take all these photos and now no matter where I am in the world, I can send it to the frame if I get it as a gift. I can upload my photos to my parents or to my fiance or to someone, you know, and and to get it posted. But if you take a million photos only to let them sit in your phone or get lost in your files, just like us, let me tell you something. What if you could put all of your photos from random camera roll pics to that high res wedding album onto one gorgeous frame? You can with Aura Frames. It's named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter, the strategist, and more. And I get it. It's incredible. Or is nothing like the digital frames from a decade ago. Every R frame is thoughtfully designed to fit any decor style with a stunning HD display, unlimited storage, super easy setup, and no fees. Simply connect your R frame to Wi-Fi and use the free R app to add endless pics and videos from anywhere in the world. Invite friends and family on the app. This is super cool. And have them comment, heart, and send new photos to your frame. It kind of like social media eyes these digital frames. It's like a real-life social network that brings you and your loved ones joy every single day. Aura Frames makes easy, meaningful holiday gifts, especially for the hard-to-shop-for folks in your life. And get this, what you can do is preload them with your favorite photos and even a personalized video message. And no need to wrap because every box is ready to gift. Right now, listeners of Legal AF can take advantage of Aura's incredible sale and you can get up to $50 off their best-selling Carver matte frames. Just go to AuraFrames.com slash Legal AF. That's A-U-R-A. F-R-A-M-E-S dot com slash Legal AF. These are Aura's lowest prices ever, so get yours now before they sell out. And if you miss the current sale, don't worry. There's going to be so many great deals throughout the end of the year and terms and conditions apply. Now, Michael Popak, I do want to talk about Jack Smith's contempt motion. You know, so one thing I should frame this as is and let people know, though, The proceedings before criminal grand juries in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere pre-indictment are done in secret. So unlike the January 6th committee where you see what's going on in public, 
The way we learn about what's going on is through sources that are there or sources familiar, good reporting. And occasionally, because there exists an under seal docket, you can maybe see the dates of filings, but you can't even see what's being filed. But as certain lawyers walk in and leave the courtroom, you can kind of deduce, okay, something big is happening, and then try to work sources to find out um, what what transpired in court. So what we had learned is that the Department of Justice had filed this motion for contempt against Donald Trump and, and perhaps other members of his team because they weren't designating a custodian of records. Nobody who works with Trump wanted to put their name on a declaration to say all of the documents that Trump stole have now been returned. And they don't want to do that because they know the Department of Justice, after conducting the National Security Review, probably knows all of the documents that are still outstanding and that were stolen by Trump. And so one of the things that I think Jack Smith is trying to do is bait somebody into perjury or just have somebody make a statement, a declarative statement that is false, or even if it's not false, and if they want to say that there are other documents outstanding, at least kind of corner Trump with that. So we heard about this motion for contempt because no one in the Trump's world was willing to put their name into this custodian of records, which is a fairly common, easy thing that happens in all litigation. But then we found out that the judge didn't grant the contempt motion, um, but said to the parties, go and try to resolve it amongst yourself first. And I think a lot of people on social media, their immediate response was, who's this judge? Oh, no. Trump won again. Oh, What's God. going on? Which is completely the wrong read from this. So, right. Popak, tell us a little bit about Judge Beryl Howell, what yeah. happened here, and why the fact that the judge didn't immediately grant contempt is a normal thing that you and I would see in the court system. I'm not sure. He, he was a lot of things. I'm just not sure that Donald Trump and his organization were in contempt. And that was the problem I think Beryl Howell had. And yes, yeah, so all these things are in secret, although a number of news organizations, including Bloomberg and others, have filed applications and petitions and motions with the court to try to get as much information about these proceedings <clears throat> under the um, doctrine of fair reporting and, and First Amendment as possible. Although I don't think Beryl Howell, who's um, we have nothing but praise for it based on how she's handling the supervision of every grand jury that's can being conducted at present in the District of Columbia, including at least, I think, three or four that relate to January 6th, the insurrectionists, the fake electors, Donald Trump, Mar-a-Lago, and the like. The good news, as we've reported before, is that we'll never have to say the names Eileen Cannon and Donald Trump uh, related to Mar-a-Lago ever again. As you've reported and I've reported, um, Trump gave up, threw in the towel, um, and did not appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court or even to the full panel of the 11th Circuit the decision by the very well-reasoned uh, decision led by Chief Judge Pryor of the 11th Circuit to eliminate and dismantle the entire special master program that Eileen Canada put in. What everybody forgets on social media and otherwise, and we try to remind and analyze, is that the search warrant was the last straw at Mar-a-Lago. But a subpoena has been pending for six months, supervised by Beryl Howell, who's really the judge that, that Trump should worry about, 
in the District of Columbia. She's responsible for all things related to Trump turning over an obligation to turn over by law and, and criminal penalties all documents responsive, no matter where they reside, no matter as long as they're under Trump's care, custody and control. Um, it doesn't matter if they're in a storage locker, a foot locker, a desk drawer, an electronic server, a storage unit run by the government. We'll talk about that in a minute, given to Trump as part of his ex-president office um, allotment. It doesn't matter. Trump is obligated to respond fully, completely and fulsomely to that subpoena and the and what's been going on in the courtroom, including the day before yesterday, is that the Department of Justice has learned through disclosures by Trump's uh, lawyer team, not all of their lawyers. And we'll talk about the internal struggle that seems to be going on among the Boris Epstein wing of the of the lawyers for Trump and the Chris Keiss wing of the lawyers for Trump, much like what happened in the White House with the White House counsels that were um, Republicans in name, but not Trumpers, and the real crazies like John Eastman and Jeffrey Clark, um, and the battle that went on in the White House. That battle's going on now, apparently, among the civil lawyers uh, and the criminal lawyers about how to respond properly to these subpoenas and these search warrants. It turns out that the um, private lawyers, the lawyers for Trump, learned that there was another place to look for documents, that there was a federally run and managed storage facility in West Palm Beach, Florida, by the GSA, of all things, the General Services Administration, which I presume is part of every ex-president gets an office and staff, whether you're Obama, Carter, um, Bush, you all, you all get that, and Trump gets it, and we pay. For, taxpayers pay for this. Taxpayers pay for his office. I'm sure we're paying a percentage of some Mar-a-Lago rental fee. It, it galls me to say that, and staff and Secret Service coverage, and like storage units. You know, so they went into the storage unit, or they sent in an independent company. The Trump lawyers did, and found two more classified documents, which they had to reveal to the government, and the government just slapped its forehead and said, "See, Judge." They they're they're spoon feeding us information. They're not appointing a records custodian. Trump's not signing any affidavit or declaration about what's been searched, why certain things have been searched and they haven't been searched, which has happened in every other case that's involved Trump. I mean, even in New York, they forced Trump to certify at some point, Alina Hobbit to certify that desk drawers were searched. <clears throat> so that was the last straw for the Department of Justice. Like, like two more classified documents this late in the game, eight months out. What else hasn't been searched? We need a proper inventory. We need somebody to sign on the dotted line, judge, and they're in contempt. Where the judge, it appears, pushed back was on the contempt. The power of a judge to, to find someone in contempt is that there has to be an order. And you can argue that the, the subpoena is an order, of course, and that there has been a violation of that order in a contemptuous or contumacious way by the other side. That's where I think Beryl Howell, in a temperate manner, in a in a an adult mature manner, said, "I don't think that you reach the level of contempt yet. Go talk. You know where I'm going with this. I mean, judges can signal to the other side with their gavel and their looks the and time. their words. Right? They can signal where they want the." outcome to come without throwing down the hammer of a contempt order against Donald Trump. So I'm sure she didn't sit there passively during the hearing, but she let the other side know, and I've been told this many times, and so have you, go out in the hallway, 
go out in the hallway and work this out or I'm going to make the next ruling and, you're, and nobody's going to like it or you're not going to like it, Mr. Trump. Or they bring you into chambers, uh, which you do when you don't want anybody to know, but when they're in, it's, it's a secret hearing anyway, so they probably were in the courtroom. And I'm sure there was a stern warning by the judge to the Trump team. Here's where, the, here's where I thought the judge would take a little more interest. And I said this on one of my hot takes. She now knows from reporting, at least, that there's a battle between Boris Epstein and Chris Keiss about what to search, what to disclose, when to disclose it, and what to turn over. If I'm the judge and the Department of Justice, I'm sure, raised the issue about the feud among the lawyers, I'm like, you know what? Let's have an evidentiary hearing. Let's find out with Mr. Keiss, you know, and we've got attorney-client privilege issues, but I want to get to the bottom of why the, the record search is so screwed up here. And, and, and what is the problem and get lawyers to talk about that. So she's read that reporting, I am sure. And and look, if the Kais wing of the lawyers doesn't prevail and win, the next motion for contempt that's brought by the Justice Department, by Jack Smith, is going gonna, is gonna to be granted. So if they don't come to Jesus off this, this hearing, if that, that didn't scare the crap out of them, the Trump lawyers, to now sit have a sit down with Trump and everybody that's responsible for any of his facilities and say, I want to know every desk drawer, closet door, storage unit that 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 Trump has access to or records could be, and go back and do a diligent search and somebody sign on the dotted line that they did that, so they're responsible. Then I then I think they're going to have a much more amenable Beryl Howell to go to what we call progressive discipline, the next step. But judges are often loath to do contempt as their first uh, penalty. They'd rather encourage cooperation and good behavior under the federal rules with the threat, with the sword hanging over everybody's neck, that if you don't do it right this time, and I, we find one more classified document sitting in an unsearched locker or storage unit or desk drawer, Hell's going to be, there's going to be hell to pay. I think that's the next step. Everybody should just back off of Beryl Howell. She's doing a great job in managing these things from what we can see from the docket and the reporting and what Trump is doing. They're searching these places because they're worried that there's even more classified documents that haven't been revealed. A few points to add to that. Judge Beryl Howell is an Obama appointee. Judge Beryl Howell is the one who recently made the ruling that Trump's top former White House lawyers, Pat Cipollone, Patrick Philbin, and former Vice President Pence's top staffers, Mark Short, the former uh, chief of staff, and Greg Jacobs, the former general counsel, that none of them were entitled to assert any executive privilege and that they must disclose their direct communications with Donald Trump. So, to Popak's point, when he says Judge Beryl Howell has made a number of important rulings and helpful rulings and constitutionally correct rulings, that's one of them I want to point out. Next thing I want to point out is hiding documents, concealing documents, destroying documents in response to a subpoena. To me, is contempt the appropriate remedy or more likely, and one of the things that Judge Beryl Howell may have said, is those things actually are crime. And it's the crime of obstruction, obstruction of justice that carries with it a sentence of up to 20 years for obstructing 
the subpoena. And so knowing that obstructing a subpoena is the crime, that is a crime, one of the questions then becomes, can legally, how do you do it? How do you compel somebody to become a custodian of records where they are in jeopardy of criminal prosecution? And does that potentially raise with it a Fifth Amendment uh, right against self-incrimination to be invoked? Because if I'm a lawyer, and I want, I was going to say, if I'm one of the lawyers representing uh, Donald Trump and whatever yeah, I do. Yeah, you are a lawyer. Me, it makes me sicker, <laughs> though, than uh, right. I may be. If I was a lawyer. About, but, if I, but, but if I was the lawyer representing Trump, yeah. I would say, look, Judge, I'm the lawyer. I'm not signing a custodian of records declaration. That's not my that's not my job. My job is to defend the client and ultimately, your honor, this is a criminal investigation taking place of Donald Trump. He's not going to sign anything because he's invoking his 5th Amendment rights against self-incrimination. And part of what makes me think that Popak and you're going to like this insight if you rewind a little bit to the Cash Patel proceedings, one of the things that the Department of Justice argued was that Cash Patel should not be entitled to invoke his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination, which is a kind of an, a unique argument. Like, why wouldn't someone who's being criminally pro criminally investigated be able to invoke it? And I think what they were arguing was a similar custodian of records style argument as well. Someone who pointed this out, who I want to give credit to when I read it and I thought was was really, really smart, and she's always on point with everything, is uh, Alison Gill from Mueller, she wrote, and she made the point about Cash Patel that I just raised. But I do think that the actual somebody signing the custodian of records, making an attestation, potentially invokes Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. However... That is an issue, though, with Jack Smith being as aggressive as he is. I appreciate that Jack Smith is trying to force the issue. I appreciate that the likely outcome was probably some variation of what you just said, Popak, and I just said, where the judge probably discussed all of those issues with the party and basically said, sort it out, or even told the Department of Justice, look, if ultimately you think they're not responding to your subpoena and you have doc, you have evidence that they're not turning over documents, file file your case, file your yeah. criminal case. That's obstruction. That's a crime. So that's my take, Pope. Yeah, on cash on cash Patel, they gave him immunity in order for him to testify and drop the Fifth Amendment after right? after. Right. right. So when they originally made the argument that he should not be entitled to assert mm -hmm. his Fifth Amendment rights. And then Judge Beryl Howell still made a ruling. <laughs> right. we learned. He said, give him immunity and he'll testify. And that's what they, and that's what they exactly. ultimately did. So that's but why the, I think that, yeah. that, that, that's what I think that happened. And also, look, look, go, go for a pop-up. No, no, I was going to say, you're, I, I, think, I think you're right. There, there is a fine line. There's a, a needle that's being threaded in real time by Beryl Howell about how far she can go to compel somebody to do something that is also potentially the basis of the criminal prosecution. Exactly. And I think she's threading that needle really, really well. Judges don't even like contempt to begin with, and they'll do it in the extraordinary circumstances. She thinks with the power of her black robe and stern warnings that she can get what she needs without having to 
without having to walk through the minefield that you outlined of Fifth Amendment problems, undermining the criminal prosecution. And like you said, if Jack Smith has the goods, it's not Jack Smith's burden to show compliance with the search warrant. It's Trump's team ultimately has the burden to show that they've complied with the search warrant. If they don't want to go search that locker sitting in West Palm Beach or in Chicago or in Trump Tower, some man-sized safe in Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue, then, then woe be them when the Justice Department gets fresh evidence from cooperating witnesses that seem to be multiplying by the day that there is inf- that there are documents contained in those places giving rise to a new grounds for a new search warrant. We're letting him go through a subpoena process. This is Jack Smith's view. While he's cooperating and being a good boy, he's shown that he's not, he can't be trusted. The next thing Trump's got to worry about is a new executed search warrant in one of these locations or all of these locations with another magistrate judge or the same magistrate judge if it's in West Palm Beach because that's Southern District of Florida. I think they go back before Reinhardt on that one. Um, Or in Trump Tower in New York or whatever. If he doesn't turn this stuff over out of his cold, dead grip at this point, he's just inviting Jack Smith to have another search warrant executed at these locations based on witness cooperating testimony that I'm sure they have. Couldn't agree more with you. One of the things I also want to just add there before we go to the next topic is a flurry. It was a flurry of subpoenas. It was raining subpoenas this week, and Jack Smith had sent subpoenas out to uh, uh, local uh, boards of advisors, I mean, uh, uh, boards of elections in uh, Arizona, Board of Supervisors in Arizona, Maricopa County, in Wisconsin, and in Michigan, and also to the Secretaries of State in Michigan and Arizona, and is moving very aggressively there, and is focusing not just on the January 6th insurrection itself, not just on the fake elector scheme where these state legislators, and we'll talk about the independent legislature theory in a moment, but that these state legislators wanted to submit their own names as the as a fraudulent elector state. These extremist MAGA Republican legislators said, we're the real electors, not the actual real electors. Um, so not just focusing on the fake elector crimes, but also Trump's efforts at pressuring individual uh, local uh, boards that certify election results like the boards of supervisors in Maricopa County. We'll keep you updated. As Can I ask you a question? About- Can I ask you? A- this is going to love this segue. Can I ask you a question? Yep. Do you cook? Sometimes. Bagel do, bites. Do you eat? Do, do, do you eat? <laughs> no, I, know, I know you cook. So uh, I cook. Did you know that? Do you know that I I, I got a yen for I would, cooking? I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past you. I can imagine yeah. you being yeah. So so three to four days a week, I actually whip up some some family meal over here, and I I didn't really do that before, but now that I got a decent sized kitchen, I started doing it, and I started generating in doing that. As you can imagine, I started generating a lot of like food scraps, and I like roasting vegetables and proteins and things, and I had I sort no of a lot. Uh, yes, you do. Uh, what do you think? You're the only one that does an ad read? Okay. <laughs> so, so I have at the end of a meal, let's say I do a Sunday roast, I've got buckets and buckets and buckets of of wet food and scraps and all sorts of things. And I, you know, I fancy myself to be a, a green person. I like to work on my carbon footprint and dumping all of that wet stuff, pounds of it into a garbage can and putting it out for the daily trash collection, sort of always stuck in my craw until... 
until I discovered a device, a kitchen appliance made by Pila called the Lomi. In fact, for those that are watching, and for those that think we don't really use this stuff, here's my Lomi. <laughs> and this, okay, here it is. I mean, seriously, I love this. Look at this thing. I'm going to hug it. I'm going to hug it. So the Lomi <laughs> is good if you're a chef or even a, a, a weekend warrior in the kitchen because literally pounds of uh, a wet scraps, food scraps, vegetable scraps, meat scraps, and everything else that goes from your cooking can go in the Lomi. You have it in the kitchen with you. I had it, I actually just took the canister out of the Lomi. There's a metal canister inside. I leave it in the sink, in a larger sink. And I just, as I'm putting the vegetables and the scraps, and the, I put it in there. By the end of a meal, it's almost entirely full. If not entirely full, I might add some other things from the refrigerator that are sort of rotting in there, unfortunately. And I, and I fill it I fill it up completely. And this allows me to take pounds and pounds of food scrap and turn it into dirt and soil that I can then use. Either I can throw that dirt and soil away and it's such a small, compact amount of product, or I can actually use that dirt and soil because it's nutrient rich and put it into a garden or a planter or something in the home and kind of eliminates my whole, my whole eco guilt. So Getting this Lomi allows me to turn my food scraps into dirt with a push of a button. It's a countertop electric composter that turns scraps into dirt. Some people said, isn't it compost? No, it's dirt. We call it dirt for a reason. We call it soil for a reason, and that's the reason. You can do it in under four hours. There's a setting, a fast expedited setting that you can turn this giant canister of food scraps into small little balls of dirt in four hours. There's no smell when it runs, and it's really, really quiet. It's actually, because uh, we tested it, it's actually uh, more quiet than a dishwasher on a setting. Um, it's less garbage each week. It, we, we've gone from three giant bags or plastic bags of garbage to less than one or, or none if I'm able to uh, use all that dirt and soil in plant and planting. Since I got my, my Lomi, um, I throw out a lot less garbage. It means there's there's a lot less going to landfills and producing methane. And instead, I turn my waste into nutrient-rich dirt that I can feed my plants. So look, um, if you're interested in turning huge bags of garbage into small little balls of dirt that you can use in various ways and reduce your carbon footprint, then you need to get a Lomi by Pila. And if you want to start making a positive environmental environmental impact or just make cleanup after dinner that much easier, Lomi is perfect for you. So head to Lomi.com. That's L-O-M-I.com slash what else? Legal AF. And use the promo code Legal AF to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to L-O-M-I dot com slash legal af and use promo code legal af at checkout food waste is gross Lomi is your solution with the holidays just around the corner Lomi will make the perfect gift for someone on your shopping list turn your food waste into dirt with the press of a button with Lomi use the code legal af to save fifty dollars at Lomi.com slash legal af that's where I was going Ben I you know the head fake you, you faked me out. I didn't know where you were Do you going. Cook? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we, we may got we may have to do a little work on the transition. I thought like the you cook had to deal with what the topic we were talking about. That's usually the way we do transition. The way transition. No, I like it. Usually- I like this one. 
<laughs> Keep I, it. I stays in like, the pod. <laughs> stays in the pod. You like the you like the product. Copac, do you like parachuting? Yeah. Do you like bungee jumping? <laughs> Have you ever fallen you off like a bed? Jumping? Let's talk about the. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, Popak, two, two really big oral arguments that took place yep. uh, in the Supreme Court. I mean, there were more, but I want to focus on these two um, because of their uh, importance on everybody's lives who are watching this and here in the United States. Um, so, one case 303 Creative versus Ellenus. Um, and this was a case that would allow private businesses. It was a website designer who didn't want to make wedding websites for anyone who's part of the LGBTQ plus community. And they want, even though they never actually were approached by anyone from the LGBTQ plus community, what they were claiming their injury was this business at issue was they wanted to put their Colorado business and they wanted to put a sign that basically says no gays welcome on their website. I mean, it's a little a little bit more detailed of a sign than that. No, that's, that's about it. That's about it. <laughs> that's yeah, about you're about you're about right with that description. And the state of Colorado said under our state anti-discrimination laws, that's discrimination. And so, no, you can't put on your website that gays aren't welcome uh, to your business because that's unlawful. And that company, led by Republican Federalist Society members, said, I'm injured. I'm injured by that. You caused me an injury. I need to put on my website. I want to put on my website. We didn't actually confront a situation where anyone came our way that we turned away, but we need to put on our website that hate. We need to put on no gays welcome on our website because as part of our religious views, we don't believe anybody should be a part of the LGBTQ plus community. We our religion is against that. And I want you to talk about this case a bit, Popak, yeah. but you know, you had people like Judge Alito and other right wingers be like, mm. yeah, yeah, you know, and they gave some of the some of the most sadistic and like sick analogies that they thought were like funny. And there was one analogy where Judge Alito was like, well, are you telling me, hypothetically, if there was a black Santa Claus and a little kid wearing a Ku Klux Klan outfit, are you telling me that the black Santa would have to hug that child? And the solicitor general from Colorado was like, first off, what the hell are you talking about? Um, number one, he didn't say that, but he's like, what? Like, well, no, you a Ku Klux Klan outfit in a public accommodation is not protected. Um, so, Popa, uh, what's going yeah. on here? Yeah, that one was even weirder. And what it shows, and I talked about it on a hot take, when you have Alito joking about in response to the um, only black, well, well, she's a black woman. I was say the only black person. I keep forgetting Clarence Thomas is also African-American. But in response to a very well-formed example by Ketanji Brown Jackson, Justice Jackson, in which she said, let me get this straight. Suppose there's a mall Santa and the mall Santa, and they decide the photographer involved who's a creative person. So it matches up with this creative exception that the right-wingers seem to be making about when you can discriminate or not. If you're in the creative field, you can discriminate all you want, as long as it's a deeply held part of your Christian values, which, um, what would Jesus do? I can tell you what would Jesus do. He wouldn't be discriminating against the LGBTQ community. But having said that, Katanji set up the following very good example to the Solicitor General of, our, of, of uh, Arizona. 
Suppose the photographer wanted to have a 1940s look and feel to his photographs and wanted it to look like It's a Wonderful Life or Norman Rockwell painting and didn't want black children to sit because black children, you know, a lot of states weren't able to go into a, a mall and sit on a white Santa's lap. And uh, so no black, no black kids, no black children. That is a powerful use and proper use of a searing question to get to the heart of the matter. Showing that the right wing not only has a tin ear, is bigoted, racist, but also believes that um, has a jocularity about racism that comes with with having the majority and having the and being cocky because you have the majority and you have the votes leads one Sam Alito in a in completely inappropriate humorous attempt, attempt at humor. To then follow up Katanji Brown Jackson by saying, "Well, well, uh, how about child, uh, black children in KKK Halloween costumes?" And the the court watchers were like, "Did he just effing use the KKK and black children to retort Katanji Brown Jackson?" A, it's wrong. B, it just shows you, Ben, that they the fact that they can inappropriately joke in racial terms and tones primarily the white people on there, just shows you how, how, how morally unhinged and unmoored they've become to think that they can get away with it because they've got the votes. He then went on. It gets worse. I thought this was like a lost episode of The uh, Handmaid's Tale. Courtroom. Are you going to talk about the Ashley Madison one where he where he talks? Yeah, he to turns him? to, he turns, yes, he turns to Kagan, which apparently when they're not under the Klieg lights of being on the bench, they're kind of friendly he turned to Kagan, who, who, referring to some amicus briefs that were that were filed, he didn't have to use all the examples out of the amicus briefs. One of the amicus briefs talked about JDate, which is a Jewish dating service, like Match.com for primarily Jewish people. And he turned to Kagan, who's Jewish, and, and made a reference to JDate. And, we and people were like, you know, one eye closed, like, where is this going? You know, trying to like, you know, backslapper, this, this is funny. About a very serious matter, about a not just about a website designer who's using her Christian values to discriminate against people and not make a same-sex wedding uh, uh, website, um, a marriage website for which goes beyond that to be racism at its core. Now, for the first time ever, tolerated by the U.S. Supreme Court in the guise of religious freedom. So this is not like a happy jocular moment, but to start kibitzing. That's a Yiddish legal term with Kagan next to him about J date. And then he went one step further. He actually brought up Ashley Madison, as you just said, which is a notorious dating service and website for married people who want to marry, who want to date outside their marriage. I mean, you know what well, he you goes, know where this he goes, he goes, just as Kagan, I'm sure you know about Ashley Madison. <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about? But you know what? We know where this comes from. This comes from the confident, the cocky confidence of the right, right wing. This is why Clarence Thomas talks now in the last four to six years when he never spoke before. This is why Sam Alito picks up the microphone like a borscht belt comedian in the Catskills and starts telling jokes like it's some like a lost episode of of Mrs. Maisel. You know, I think get a get an effing grip. You're talking about for the first time the U.S. Supreme Court likely based on the oral argument likely ruling that religious freedom allows you to discriminate 
And a public business, a business that gets its money from the public, can say no to blacks, can say no to Jews, can say no to Hispanics, can say no to um, LGBTQ plus community if it's against their deeply held religious views and still be in business and not violate a state's public accommodation and racism law. And then you had Gorsuch who turned it into this Orwellian thing. Well, doesn't Arizona, this is Colorado, right? Doesn't Colorado, Colorado doesn't Colorado require businesses to, uh, to have training in the area of discrimination, what they can and can't do, which good well, to goes, know. Good. So, so he goes, the Orwellian part of what he goes. Yeah, well, he I didn't get there yet. about yes, the prior ahead. case in Colorado that involved the wedding cake maker who wanted to discriminate and that was decided on narrower grounds but one of the things gorsuch asked the solicitor general was well don't you force people in the state of colorado to go to re-education camps re-education camps isn't that's what isn't that what it is well it wasn't it it wasn't i'm gonna give you a yellow card i was about to get there you decided to jump in it's okay it's all right my point is he raised the issue of what is normal Every business in America, in order to get the benefit of defenses to discrimination, does some sort of training, either online or live and in person for their employees. And states do the same thing. And the fact that Gorsuch has the temerity to call that, you know, some sort of re-education, like Nazification, re-education camp in Orwellian fashion just shows you how far the right wing has gone and how confident they are that they can say anything in an oral argument. To telegraph to both the public and to their fellow justices where they're going to sit. The bad news of this, and I want to hear your view, Ben. The bad news is if if the oral argument and this group is terrible at keeping at having a poker face about where they are. If this oral argument and the way the questions were asked is is indicative of where their ultimate ruling is going to go, unless Roberts can somehow pull this thing together and thread it, they're going to rule that a, if you're a Christian or some religion and you're in the creative world, not your not the guy that does your jiffy lube oil change, but something that they that they are they find tantamount to creative expression they're going to find it's okay to be a racist and it's okay to discriminate, which is so effed up because let's be honest, the way they should be threading the needle on this is to argue, is to accept that this is not the expression of the website designer. This is the expression of the couple. This is their expression. We're not forcing the website designer to do anything. That's not compelled speech, which is at the heart of this analysis. It is the creative, the message is from the couple. They're the editors of their own life. They're the narrators of their own life, not the website designer. The website designer is just like making it look pretty and putting it together. She's not writing their nuptials. She's not writing how they first met on their, you know, their their cute meet first date. That's the that's the lives of those. That's their expression. So if it's their expression, Expression, which is what uh, both Kagan and Katanji Brown Jackson said. Why are we even talking about the First Amendment rights of the website designer o- overcoming, you know, b- being allowed to uh, promote racism? Yeah. And the one thing I want to mention there, too, and people may be wondering, well, wh- why do we care about a website designer or a cake maker or a random coach in some school? Because the reason is, is that creates precedent on all other businesses. And so these cases are basically created in right-wing Republican Federalist Society uh, case factories, like a cake factory, but case factories. And they pick 
sympathetic sounding fact patterns, they generate and gin up a fake injury. In this case, the wedding designer saying, I'm injured that I can't put up no gays welcome on a website. And then they're talking about well, look, this is just a devout Christian and they want to have it. It's a small business owner and they're doing these websites or they're making cakes. And, and why are we going to ruin their cakes? And so the trick that they do, and this is why we need to be aware of it, is that the public at large thinks this is about a wedding cake or in the cases we talked about a few months ago in the previous term of the Supreme Court in uh, on Legal AF is the coach who knelt in prayer after a football game, pretty sympathetic guy who goes, please don't discriminate again. I'm just, I'm exercising my religion after a football game, a violent sport alone, just telling the players, if you want to join me, join me in prayer, but don't worry about it at a public school. That's the fake out. Because once the Supreme Court rules that the coach can kneel in prayer, then the floodgates are open. That creates a precedent for everyone else saying there is no separation of church and state in public settings. And here, you know what? You know what proves your point in that in the case of the of the coach Alito actually said in oral argument, "The facts here are really messy. Let's not get bogged down in the facts." Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I thought the Supreme Court is supposed to take a case of live controversy to have jurisdiction exactly. and then make a ruling. So, so to prove your actual point that you've just made, Alito let the mask slip for a minute and said out loud in an oral argument, we don't really care. The facts here are really messy. Was he on the playing field? Was he off the playing field? Did he compel people to join? Who cares? Let's talk about religion in a school se- a school setting. So they, they, they gave themselves this much broader mandate to create this dangerous set of precedent, this, this case factor factory that you talked about. Um, And it's one of the first times I ever heard a judge basically tell the advocates uh, before him, I don't really care about the facts. Let's just get to the law that I want to make. I want to make the law. I want to make the law that I want to make. Can can you stop talking? Stop that talking thing so I can just make the law I want to make? And here the facts are web designer LGBTQ+, but the precedent that will be created, as you said, is a private business that's claiming a religious basis can discriminate against LGBTQ+, but also against African-Americans, against, against anyone. I mean, businesses can discriminate. And then to one just point to add, you said, well, they can't do it to a jiffy lube. This, we're talking about creative expression for now for now, because then the next set of cases that then are generated through the case factory. Relying on this case, relying relying on this case. case. Well, isn't isn't a Jiffy Lube, isn't the auto mechanic a form of artistic expression as well? And therefore, isn't all business some form of artistic expression? And then basically you create a discriminatory regime that overcomes decades and decades and decades of civil rights legislation that protects against virulent discrimination. And it brings you us know to what's a great a, point in this. You know, it's yeah. a, you know it's a creative venture that welcomes all, including everybody in the LGBTQ plus community and every other place, podcasting and legal AF and the Midas Touch Network. And it brings us to an important point, though, about ideological consistency and the lack thereof of the right wing, because there is no ideological consistency. So the same people who tell you states' rights, states' rights, states' rights, 
Now we're confronted with the case called Moore versus Harper, and that involves the independent state legislature theory or state legislature doctrine, which basically holds when it comes to federal elections, a state legislature can do anything that they want. It doesn't matter what's in the state constitution. It doesn't matter what the state Supreme Court does. Think about that. It doesn't matter what the state Supreme Court does. The state legislature can just do whatever they want in this regime of federal elections. And the case at issue, Moore versus Harper, involved a North Carolina Republican gerrymandering scheme that ran afoul to the political gerrymandering provisions in the state constitution. And further, under the state constitution, it specifically vested the state Supreme Court with the ability to strike down unconstitutionally politically gerrymandered maps. The state legislature then files a lawsuit that works its way up to the Supreme Court, arguing this independent state legislature theory, which up until now was viewed in law schools and in academia and just in everywhere as just some batshit crazy dystopian hypothetical that maybe you just kind of laugh and mock when you brought it when you bring it up like if you go through a provision of law school and you go well what if but no one ever took it seriously the very fact that the supreme court is taking it seriously is very, very, very problematic because what it basically would say is, look, the state legislature in North Carolina can come up with any type of map that it wants. State constitution, supreme state Supreme Court be damned. And that holds. No one can challenge it. This state legislature is independent. The purported basis of this is Article 1, which involves the legislative branch, Section 4, Congress, Clause 1 which says the times, place, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations except as to the places of choosing senators. And so the time, place, and manner of holding elections being prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof was always just thought to mean, okay, like literally the time, 8 a.m. to 6, 8 a.m. to 6, the place, here's literally the schools and the community centers, and then the manner itself would be like literally, here's the date, you can do it on weekends, but not that it means that the state legislature can literally do whatever the hell it wants. And it also doesn't make any sense because state legislatures are species of the state constitution. A state legislature is created by the state constitution. So the very concept that the theory would be that the legislature is more powerful than the document that created it is such a weird and bizarre thing to begin with. And then the fact that you're saying the state Supreme Courts have no power makes absolutely no sense at all. And even though this case, this Moore versus Harper, dealt with the gerrymandering issue, it didn't deal with, well, can state legislatures just pick who they want to win the election and not have to deal with the actual electors? Um, In other words, the fake elector scheme that was perpetrated by Trump, what if the state independent legislator theory says, you know what? The state legislature can just say, we want our slate, not the real slate. Can they do that? 
Well, this case didn't address that point, but it certainly felt like it would open the floodgates for that point if you're saying the state legislature is independent and, and doesn't have to deal with state constitutions and doesn't have to deal with state Supreme Courts. So here, you know, one of the things, and, and it was Neil Katayel who argued for uh, democracy, you know, for, for, for the state Supreme Courts for the states against the state legislature, odd kind of dynamic of, of who's on each side of the issue. But what Neil Katayel, I think, did great was he really pointed out all of what these judges have said before in trying to dismantle the federal government. They've said repeatedly that state Supreme Courts are, are vested with this power and the state constitution is vested with these powers. So Katayel was able to, and he was a guest on the Midas Touch podcast, he was able to point out, look, here are all of the examples where you specifically said the exact opposite of what the state independent legislature doctrine uh, requires. So what ultimately do I think is going to happen in that case? To the extent there is any finding about the independent legislature doctrine being allowed, it's going to be on a very, 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 the most narrow ground possible. Um, but I, I don't believe that that even this right when court's going to uh, agree that the state independent legislature doctrine uh, holds here. But uh, we will see in the ruling. Nothing would shock me or surprise me there. Popak, I'm going to go on to the next topic unless you got any final commentary you want to make about the. Independent- no, we could have just we could have just dropped your hot take in there. That was that was perfectly done. I I don't think this. I'll just say one thing. I based on the oral argument, I don't think even this right wing is going to give is it's going to result in a muscular reanimation of this doctrine that's been part of the federalist society platform and plank for a long time and every once in a while when like Clarence Thomas or Alito you know drop a footnote about it or or others I mean there's even Gorsuch just said that he sort of leans towards it but even they're not going to undermine the entire federal election process and give that much power and authority based on that very slim read of the Constitution that you just read and find that that enables um, state legislators, uh, legislations to run amok when it comes to how they run and certify federal elections. I mean, that would be a Pandora's box that even this Supreme Court would want to open. Couldn't agree more with you. And now let's just go to Washington, D.C., the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which heard oral argument in Trump's appeal of a district court's ruling that he doesn't have absolute civil immunity relating to the January 6th insurrection. Judge Amit Mehta was the federal judge we've talked about a lot, but back in February and February 18th of 2022, Judge Amit Mehta found absolute immunity didn't apply here. And it's an interesting one, Popak, because generally when it comes to, we're talking only about civil lawsuits here, okay? We're not saying that, you know, that there's absolute immunity from criminal liability engaging in crimes, but from monetary damages or other civil remedies um, based on the reading of Article 2 and a precedent established by Nixon versus Fitzgerald, it was generally held that presidents are immune from civil lawsuits during their term. And you contrasted the Nixon Fitzgerald fact pattern, which was a 1982 case involving 
someone who worked in the federal government who sued Nixon for retaliating against him after a congressional hearing. The lawsuit was brought after Nixon was in office. It was brought, in, but and then it was heard by the Supreme Court in 82. But there the court said, look, even if the conduct by Nixon was unlawful, like unlawfully retaliating against a member of the government for um, uh, for testifying truthfully before a before the Congress as a whistleblower, even if that's the case, because a president is responsible for hiring and firing, we're not going to let presidents be sued for that because it would open the floodgates to civil damages. You contrasted that with the 1996 Clinton versus Paula Jones case, which was before Clinton was in office. And there, the Supreme Court held conduct that takes place before the term, no absolute immunity. But absolute immunity means what it sounds like. It's supposed to be absolute, um, unless there is some reasons that it doesn't exist, but it's not like a qualified immunity. So one of the things the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals was grappling with is, well, if there was any example where a president should not have absolute civil immunity, this would be one where, where you're literally leading an insurrection. But under our case law and precedent, Trump was still the president and he was still giving a speech. And where do we draw the line between a speech as a president versus a speech as someone who is campaigning? And this case, just to remind you, was brought by members of the House of Representatives like Eric Swalwell and Benny Thompson. It was also brought by Capitol Police officers. Um, and they brought it under the Ku Klux Klan Act, which prohibits conspiracies using threats and violence of intimidation to block official proceedings. But that's what the D.C. Circuit was grappling with. And the lower court, the federal court said, look, this is the rarest of fact pattern that's outside of absolute civil immunity because he was not faithfully executing the Constitution by leading an insurrection against the Constitution. But I'm a little worried about the questions by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals because they seemed a little uncomfortable with the concept of finding that an absolute immunity is not absolute, even where you have someone like Trump engaged in an insurrection. But I want to be clear, Popak, we're talking about just monetary civil damages and being sued. Well, yeah, but I don't I don't want to undermine the I don't want to undermine the case. It's an important case. Judge Maida found and just to be clear, Benny Thompson was an original plaintiff, but he dropped out. Um, mainly because he was going to be the chair of the Jan 6 committee. But the, there are Capitol Police and other elected officials, including ones that were in the courtroom for the oral argument on um, on Wednesday that went for two and a half hours, including Barbara Lee, a representative from California where you, where you sit. It's important to use things like the KKK Act against the deprivation of civil rights against individuals, no matter how high their, their position no matter if they were the leader of the free world at the time that they violated these things. The <clears throat> judge made a found, and we reported on it in Legal AF at the time, um, in a breathtaking fashion, that the president was part of a civil conspiracy um, to deprive people of their civil rights under as a violation of the KKK Act. He, he made that decision with great... Um, a concern about the precedent, but said this is the set of facts that would indicate that it's appropriately applied. He dismissed the KKK Act um, case against others, uh, including Giuliani, but kept Trump in. 
The three-judge panel for the appeal was interesting. And it was really just one judge, I thought, that suggested that, that there was um, uh, absolute immunity here. And that's Judge Katsas. So you had Sri uh, Srinvasan, who is the chief judge, chaired the panel, always on the short list for Biden for Supreme Court. Obama appointee. Um, Obama appointee. You had a Clinton appointee and Judith Myers. But here's the here's the problem that's going to get all of our listeners and followers into a tizzy, rightly so. You had Katsis, Greg Katsis, as one of the he's not only a Trump appointee, Ben, he was he was the assistant or deputy White House counsel under Don McGahn for Donald Trump for 11 months. So he served in the administration as as Trump's lawyer, his number two lawyer, for an 11-month period. Yes, he was in a Bush appointee when he was a U.S. attorney, and he may be ideologically Republican rather than MAGA, but he, he worked for Donald Trump as his lawyer. Again, another example where these judges don't find anything at all, starting with Clarence Thomas on down, setting the example, that will lead to a recusal or disqualification. And and nobody moved to disqualify him, so he's sitting on the panel. And it was Katzis that led all of the, I'm not buying this. I think that Donald Trump's speech um, is not the type of speech in his presidential. He has the right to make comments and commentary and give speeches while he was still president. And the link between that and the attack on the Capitol is too remote in his view to in order to find that this was a violation of the KKK Act. He basically, just by the way he asked his questions, telegraphed that he will vote um, for full immunity for Trump and against these lawsuits. Now, the question is whether Shri and Judith Myers is going to, is going because it's, it's it could be two to one against Katzis. Katzis is clear. Based on those questions, there's no way he is voting yep. for stripping the immunity away from Donald Trump at all in this civil conspiracy. I'm troubled. I mean, don't you think the guy should have like recused himself? Why is he sitting over? It's not just a Trump appointee. He was the number two lawyer for Trump in the White House, not during Jan 6. I'll give him that. But at any time, shouldn't he say, you know what? Pass. I'm not going to sit on that panel. Yes. <laughs> yes, he should. I mean, these people crazy. are Yeah, but but you have to remember they're not good faith actors. These yeah. are people as we've talked about on this episode without any ideological consistency whose goal, frankly, all along has been to destroy our constitution and to turn the United States of America back to ages in their own mind where Racism can run rampant and they can enjoy all of the privileges that they think that they deserve in life for being born the way they were born. And it's like it's just really sickening stuff like like yeah, like Katzis not recusing himself is an F you to the legal system like but that's that's the goal, you know, and look, Trump appointed some judges who have upheld the law, and we've talked about a lot of them here on it, so it's not like all of them, but you know, he's appointed, though, the Judge Eileen Cannons and the Judge Pittmans and people who, no matter what the fact pattern is, they are going to find any way that they could undermine any type of situation where people have 
or people are treated equally or people could be healthy or they want to like literally torpedo America and to make it look like, you know, some fascist regime. They want to make it look like Russia. But by the way, they have courts in Russia. They have courts in North Korea, right? I mean, they've had courts in fascist regimes. Yeah, that's what it's, that's what they're looking to do until the dic- until the dictator dissolves the Supreme Court in those countries. But they're puppets. Well, then they tell them, well, you know, I mean, right. there are courts, and the courts make these corrupt rulings. And when Trump goes out there on his speeches and he talks about quick trials, that's what he says. He says it like that, like a freaking idiot. We need quick trials. We need quick trials. He, what he, he got a quick trial. Want- He's getting he quick. Won. You know what the good news is? He's getting quick trials. He's getting quick convictions. They're very good. Very quick. Very, very, <laughs> very quick convictions. But look, the overall takeaway is the wheels of justice keep moving in the right direction. There's going to be so much legal news to report on in the next year and few years. So buckle up. I will try to get <laughs> my I will try to get my voice back. Um, And Popak and I will be here with you uh, having these communications, rain or shine. I want to just let everybody know who watches this how grateful Michael Popak and I are for the Legal AF community, the Midas Mighty community. None of this is possible without you. We're so grateful for you each and every day. If you do want to check out our Patreon account, Check it out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Midas Touch. You know, we at Midas Touch Network, we're not funded by any outside investors at all. We flip the whole media model on its head. So where the media is normally funded by millionaires and billionaires who dictate the both sides coverage and the fascist coverage that you all loathe like we do, we're like, let's flip the script. Let's do a whole media network funded by Patreon, funded by you, the community, where it'll be 100% independent and 100% accountable to you. You will love the exclusive content that you could only get at patreon.com slash Midas Touch, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Midas Touch, M-E-I-D-A-S-T-O-U-C-H. But most importantly, help grow this independent media platform. And in addition, check out store.midastouch.com for the best pro-democracy gear. We got a lot of legal AF gear that you will love, including the Wheels of Justice long sleeve shirts. Go check it out at store.midastouch.com. I'm going to have some orange juice, maybe some more tea, do something for my voice. Michael Popak, always a pleasure spending these weekends with you. And special shout out to the Midas Mighty. 